I was just thinking about one of the differences between uh, pastors and normal people, which is normal people say cursed. Pastors say cursed. So um, anyways, so I was just thinking that that's uh, something I noticed. Really, that's not interesting to you guys? Okay. All right. Um, Walter Wangeren says, Lent is like forcing ourselves to look in the mirrors that hide nothing. Lent is like forcing ourselves to look in the mirrors Look in mirrors that hide nothing. Um, some of us have mirrors in our houses that we like. I made this point before. That's for whatever reason. I have one that's in the closet. Every time I, 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 I get, I'm getting ready, I look at this mirror that's in the closet, and, and it's, the lighting is a little bit dimmer, and it just, I just feel taller. I just feel younger. I just feel smarter, whatever it is. I have one of these mirrors, and I'm guessing most of us have one of these mirrors in our homes as well, right? You guys know which mirror I'm talking about, right? Right, okay. Most of us, I know most of us, would really like to think that we have a real sober and objective view of ourselves. But the fact is, our tendency is to view ourselves in the best light. This is one of the effects of sin, right? To view ourselves in the best light and to view others usually in the harshest light. Wangren says, the Lenten mirror is harsh for ourselves because it is true and it's accurate and it is real. It is mirror in HD. It is the mirror. It is the thing that shows us for all of our wrinkles and our flaws. Our sin-tread lives have nowhere to hide. And what we're confessing today and, and what we're confessing as we go through Lent is that living in the awareness of our sin is a crucial spiritual practice. This is one of the most important things that we can do to help us grow. One that we often neglect, though. We need to understand that becoming aware of our sinfulness is part of why we come to worship. Not just to feel good about ourselves. Not just to feel um, warm and fuzzy. But to learn to throw ourselves on God's grace. Sin, as one theologian says, is a byproduct of being confronted by God. Sin is a byproduct of faithful worship. We see sin or the real effect of sin in our lives only as we begin to see God for who he is, who is sinless. Sin is a byproduct of faithful worship. Now, last week we started by looking at the story of the original sin in Genesis 3 and the different ways in which sin seeps its poison into our lives. It poisons our air and our attitude. It poisons our trust of God. It poisons the gift, the good things that God has given to us so that instead they become, instead of the good things, they become our snares. Today we want to look at all the different aspects of our lives that this poison of sin touches. And then we want to look at how God heals us from this. So we want to look at how sin touches every aspect of our lives and how God heals us from it. Now, there are four ways that Genesis 3 teaches us about the scope of sin's impact. And from the outset, I want to say it is very comprehensive. And that is the focus of this message to remind you that sin is incredibly comprehensive in its scope and its touch Because our tendency is to contain sin to a certain category. One of the lies of sin 
is to tell us. One of the lies of evil is to make us think that sin is containable. Oh, if we are sinning in just this area of our lives, we can contain it. We can contain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can contain sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just not true. It seeps into every aspect of our lives. I'm going to talk about this in terms of four broken relationships, four connections that get broken. Sin breaks our relationship with God. Sin breaks our relationship with ourselves, within ourselves. Sin breaks our relationships with one another. And sin breaks our relationship with nature. So the first thing I want to talk about is to say sin breaks our relationship with God. Relationship with God is broken. There is a spiritual brokenness when it comes to sin. The instant Adam and Eve disobey God, it kills their relationship with God, right? And they experience spiritual brokenness. Look at verse 8 with me, and you will find some of the saddest words in the Bible. It says, they heard God coming. They heard God walking about, and they hid. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced someone you deeply love hide themselves from you. Or I don't know, maybe you experienced it for yourself where you found yourself wanting to hide yourself sadly from somebody that you love because of something that you have done. But this is the scene. This is an incredibly sad scene. Avoidance as a spiritual strategy is not something that's foreign to most of us, right? What makes this scene even sadder is that right here we're also given a glimpse into a beautiful image of how things might have been. Uh, It says, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you know, our weather these days, I think actually uh, is really quite helpful because it's been hot during the day, but there comes that moment in the evening, right around 5, 6, 7 o'clock, where things cool down. And it's just like this perfect, ideal weather right now. And you feel like the weather says, go out for a walk, right? You guys know what I'm talking about right now these days? This is like this perfect weather that says, Wow, something about it being hot and then it cools down. And and at that moment, it just feels like a perfect, ideal setting. It does remind us, in one sense, of the garden. And I think these days, it's been helping me to think about this passage. There's this ideal setting where it says, enjoy me, right? The Hebrew idiom that says, to walk with one another, implies so much more than just a physical motion. It means to have fellowship. And it's used throughout, right? And it's still used now, even um, among us in, in English. To be intimate, to be close, to tackle life together, to let's walk together. If I were to say to, to somebody here, let's walk together. There is a sense of intimacy even now. There's a sense of friendship that is invited in that conversation. The Hebrew idiom, though, this is, this is how it's used of people when they walk with God. Somebody who is faithful in God is somebody who's described as walking with God, right? To walk together. Um, the last, the final symbolic act of most weddings is what? What is the final symbolic act of most wedding ceremonies? Is you walk out together. Bride and the groom... You start off at different places. You come in separately, but then you walk out together. You guys remember this? For those of you guys who've been through weddings? You know, it's all a blur. It's so long ago. 
Really? That was a symbolic act? Yeah, that's a symbolic act. We walk off together. This is what they had. That every evening, every evening God would invite, God would come around, and God would invite Adam and Eve to go for a walk with him. Isn't this a beautiful, beautiful scene? But God comes along this one evening, and they hid. They hid. Why? Because the first impact of sin is you feel cut off from God. It's scared to be in his presence. You feel afraid. There is a sense in which you feel like we feel like we are not right in being before God's presence. There's something wrong. We can't get comfortable. So throughout scripture, what you have is even the best of the saints, the best of those who are most faithful, who described as being some of the most faithful throughout scripture, they shudder and they're terrified. and they, they fall down and flat down on their faces throughout scripture. Isaiah uh, uh, describes seeing God and says, woe is me, woe is my unclean lips, and woe is, and he goes even further to say, woe is me, woe is my unclean lips, and woe is the people that I dwell with who also have unclean lips. It's like, whoa. I can't even begin to think about being comfortable in God's presence like that, to walk with him. But that's the original promise. That is the original promise in the garden. When we were first created, we were created to walk with God. But that's the first fruit of sin. And in fact, that's how we ought to feel, not casual. Because of our sin, with fear and trembling. Now, some people might say at this point, and there have been times in my life when I've expressed it this way as well, when you say, well, um, I, I've, I've never felt that uncomfortable with God. I feel very relaxed and, and, and uh, comfortable with God. I feel very um, comforted, and, and, you know, it's, it's good. You know, it's, everything's good with me and God. I, I don't f- have that fear with God. Um, and I might say, you may need to look deeper into the God of Scripture. N- not because God is a mean God. Not because God is a judgmental God. But by his presence, by his very presence, he judges our sin. We We find ourselves worthless because of his goodness and holiness. We find what we thought we're so perfectly fine with in our spirit, we find that to be a lie. So there's a sense, folks, if you're overly comfortable and overly casual and your understanding of God is this God where all is good, then we need to grow in our understanding of God because that's not how he presents himself. That's not what the goodness of God does. That there's a right sense in which we think about it as um, as the Chronicles of Narnia talks about when it talks about Aslan. This this is to come before Aslan, the one that is for us, the one that is uh, um, 
in, in the books who, who stands in for the Christ figure is one, people always walk in with fear and trembling. It is not a um, touchy-feeling kind of a moment, but rather a time in which we become aware of God's fearful holiness because we recognize the fallenness in our hearts to be face-to-face with the awesome righteousness of God One theologian says, the holiness of Jesus, we fall to our knees. We have our noses rubbed in by the great gap between who we are and who God is. To be brought close to the one for whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Is to cry, woe is me, for I am one of unclean lips and dwell amid a people of unclean lips. That's the first thing. We lose our spiritual connection with God. That's what sin does. Second thing is that our relationship within ourselves, with ourselves is broken. What what do I mean by this? When we lose our relationship with God, we lose our sense of who we are, which makes sense because we were made for God. We lose our inner um, sense of who we are. We lose our identity. And you see this in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. It says in verse 7, chapter 3. And this is a complete reversal of chapter 2, verse 25, when it says, They were naked, and they were not ashamed. You guys remember that passage in Genesis? Where... Adam and Eve are created. They see each other and it says, as, as, a, as a sign of wholeness, as a sign of, uh, of a complete intimacy, as a, as a sign of complete uh, uh, um, unity in mind and heart. It says, they were naked, but they were not ashamed. And then we have this reversal in verse 7. It says, they were, uh, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Again, in my wedding messages, I always refer to verse 25 as a passage uh, where the marriage ideal uh, uh, that we're vowing to aspire to is given. Before the fall, there is nakedness. There is vulnerability. But after the fall, there is shame. There is covering up. There is hiding. And in the fall, there is a loss of identity. There is a loss of... uh, uh, There's this... uh, uh, sense of shame that comes about. There's a painful consciousness of our inadequacies and a desperate sense of insecurity that comes over. There is a break after, this, after the fall between how we like to present ourselves, how we think we're presenting ourselves, our outside and our inside. Anybody ever struggle with that here? Everyone does, Right? And the idea is that before the fall, there was no struggle between our outside and our inside. There was no break between those things. The idea was that there was wholeness. There was integrity, a true integrity. That we, we, there was nobody who says, oh, I wear my heart out on my sleeve. Because it was, that was just how they were. 
at the moment of the fall. There comes shame. So what is shame? One theologian says, shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Think about that for a moment because a lot of us struggle with this. And some of us who come across the most confident are actually struggling with the most on the inside, right? So it's really, really hard to tell by just appearances alone who is struggling with this idea, this, this uh, demon of shame so much. The shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. So at the moment of the fall, there's this great psychological dislocation within ourselves. We're no longer at ease within ourselves. And there's a growing fear that, that, that says, I got to do something. I have to do something to cover up this deep inadequacy that I feel. I have to do something to prove to you, but more importantly, actually to me, that I am okay. Can anyone here relate to that? Can I be a little bit vulnerable? Can I be a little bit naked? I feel this constantly. I feel this all the time. I don't want to. And I know. And I know in my head. That I don't have to. For Christ has redeemed me. But those people who know me. Know that I am someone who constantly feels. This need to prove to myself and I'm okay this is no longer the part of me that has the last word folks okay but it is still very much a part of me and I'm not alone I'm far from alone right To varying degrees, every one of us struggles with this. Some of us are more conscious of this break than others. Some of us are more active about the hiding than others. But we all struggle with this. Now, why do we approach the world like that? It's sin. It's sin. It's the inner brokenness that is a result of sin. According to the Bible, nobody believes that they're okay. It's not a matter of some of us coming into the world and believing we're okay until we get messed up by our parents. Okay? You're not doing this because your parents said, you, you know, you thought you brought home a good grade and your parents said, okay. That's okay, but next time do better. And you go home, oh, I feel so inadequate. No, that's not, that's not, your parents didn't cause this. Your parents may have aggravated this, may have agitated this. They have that ability. This is what we do to one another. But they did not cause this. It's not the cause of it. The source is sin, folks. This break between the inner 
and the outer. The sense of shame, inadequacy, anxiety over who we really are that we might possibly be found out. So we hide. The strategies that some of us uh, have for hiding are vast and enormous and complex. But the source of all of this is sin. So spiritual break, a relationship break, a relational break with God causes a relational break within ourselves. And then thirdly, it causes relational break with one another, with each other. There's a social element, social brokenness, right? Um, verse 7 again said, Their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Have you guys ever seen fig leaves? <laughs> I don't know what fig leaves look like, but must have sewn pretty well. Uh, somebody told me one time that um, um, sometime during college, like one of their friends dressed up as Adam and Eve, and the crucial question, of course, was before or after the fall, right? Um, well, after the fall, they hide themselves. Their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked, so they sewed sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, why do they do this? Think about this, because God is not even on the scene. They're not, so they're not just hiding from God, they're hiding from each other. They're not just hiding from God, they're hiding from each other. The Bible is telling us that at the root of all of our relational and social problems is sin. Which makes sense, because if you cannot be transparent before God, you cannot be transparent with other people. Right? Because unless you find deep assurance that God absolutely loves you, and that he delights in you, that you're okay in your inmost being, that God accepts you, what happens if you try to have relationships without that? What happens without that? Is that, well, you go into relationships desperate to be accepted. You go into relationships desperate to prove to yourself and to others that you are lovable. So you wind up going into relationships not to serve others, which is the focus, which is the principle by which Christians are called to have relationships, to love others, to serve others. You think you do. You think that's why you're going to relationships. But in fact, what you're really going to relationships for is to, in fact, to put it harshly, to use people to make you feel better about yourself, right? And then when you get into those relationships with those people, you cover up because you're not going to let anyone know who you really are. This is an incredibly painful and a frustrating way for us to live. And it is the struggle, so it, so it is the struggle of all good Christian communities and friendships to choose transparency and vulnerability over hiding. Because when you hide, folks, and some of us are very good at it, especially in a social setting, but when you hide, and some of, you, some of us might be hiding even in our closest relationships that we have on earth. When you hide... When you choose not to fight against your inclination to hide, do you know what you lose? you know what the cost of that is? It's obvious, right? It's connection. 
It's connection. And eventually, no meaningful relationship can be sustained if you refuse to unhide yourself. And what Genesis 3 is telling us is that all of our interpersonal, all of our relational woes is because of sin. It has its core in sin. Now, there is a second way in which sin poisons our social lives as well. There's a second way in which sin breaks the social aspect of our lives. Sin breaks relationships between groups, not just individually, individual relationships, but relationships between groups as well. Sin creates what you would say as an us versus them. That's what sin does, us versus them mentality, in the worst sense possible. Look at what happens in verses 10 through 12 with me. God finds Adam. And there's this uh, dialogue that happens. And God finds Adam, Adam and he, sa- he asks him, what have you done? Why did you do this, right? Now, think about it for a moment. Why would God ask these questions? Why would God ask questions when he already knows what has happened? Why does any parent actually ask questions when they already know what has happened? It's because you want them to come clean. You want to give them an opportunity to come clean. God is trying to get Adam to come clean. At this point, Adam had a choice, right? Think about it. Adam has a choice. He could have said, he could have decided to throw himself on God's mercies. He could have chosen to come clean. He could have asked for forgiveness, but he doesn't. And if you don't admit that you're wrong about something, that you're wrong about, what happens? What do you do? Well, you, ha- you still have to come up with a way to justify yourself, right? Some way of bolstering up yourself, that, 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 sense, of, uh, that sense of inadequacy that builds up. When you feel like you did something wrong and you got caught red-handed. So you have to justify yourself. And almost um, one of our main strategies that most of us still use today is to direct the attention to somewhere else, right? How does Adam do this? A little bit funny, but it's not meant to be a joke. He blames the woman, right? It says, basically, verse 12, says, Lord, uh, you know how women are. It says, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. The woman you gave me. I didn't want this gift. I don't know. I, I, you know, I was, I was sleeping. The woman you gave me. Isn't that how, funny how quickly those kind of things happen in marriages as well? It's, you go from, oh, you're the best thing, honey, that's ever happened to my life. You, you. You know, all those cheesy songs that, that come up on the radio, you know, it's like they were written for you, you know. You, you, uh, you know, I love you. You are so beautiful. Although I don't get the song when it says you are so beautiful to me. You know, it's like not to everybody else. You know, but, you, but you are so beautiful completely, you know. And, and it turns from that is that, oh, the woman you gave me, Lord. And the woman's going, I'm standing right here. 
And what I want to just point out right now is touch upon just how sin messes up and immediately creates an us versus them. It messes up gender relationships, so we think men versus women. It's all men are like this. Oh, men, you just have to understand men. It's like um, versus specific husbands and boyfriends or friends or you know, brothers or fathers or whatever. It messes up gender relationships. The point is, when you reject God's grace and you have to justify yourself, one of the primary ways in which we do this is by looking at other groups of people, other genders, right? Other classes. Those people. Other races. Those people. Right? Other groups. And, you know, it's almost acceptable... It's almost acceptable in my Christian circles for us to complain and wail about the first generation Korean American. Oh, Korean, oh the, just, that's acceptable. And it's, God says no. That's not how we were created. Racism, sexism, and classism, whatever, groupism comes because of our refusal to rely on the grace of God. It's a response to the fact that we all have a self-image problem, that we have a broken self-image. Lastly, so you got the, the um, break with, or in our relationship with God, second is a uh, break within ourselves, and then you got the two different kinds of social breaks, the relational breaks. And then also, there is a break with nature, with God's creation. That's recorded here. Verses 17 through 19. This is God talking to Adam. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Work becomes toil. He said, your jobs could have been wonderful, but now it becomes work, toil. Right? And it produces thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Now there's thorns and thistles. Nature is almost, there's this, there's this uh, um, enmity between us and nature and creation. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God's original plan was that we were going to be stewards of God's creation. To be in incredible, wonderful relationship with God's creation. But we have turned, but when we turned our back on God, that put us at odds with creation as well. So, what does that mean? That means nature and creation is no longer our best friend. We're, we're meant to be friends, we were meant to be stewards of God's creation, but now there's enmity between us and even nature. So, um, and that, I think, happens at so many, so many levels. Uh, I've been struggling. How many of you guys have been struggling with allergies for the last uh, few weeks? I've been struggling with allergies. And I just can't, my voice just doesn't sound right in my head right now. It's just, there's this, all the sinus stuff, right? Allergies and pollen and all the stuff that now that our body reacts to. Part of sin. Polar vortex. 
Those of us who are here were going, what? What is that? It's like, uh, for about two months, I felt really bad about putting up any Facebook status uh, that said, oh, I'm going to have to put on my jacket because it's 55 degrees in California because I had friends in Chicago and Illinois area and, and Minis- my, my sister came from um, Minnesota where it went down with wind chill factor down to negative 50. Negative 50. Her daughter didn't see the light of day. She never breathed fresh air for like two months uh, because it was that cold. And so when she came out, and we're, uh, when she came out and visited a couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, she wanted to go outside all the time. And we we're going, oh, it's so cold. It's 45 degrees at night, you know. And they're like, what? This is like a nice summer day. Um, it's a hundred degree difference. Can you imagine that? That's nature. It's conspiring against us. Disease, floods. Famine, earthquakes, tornadoes, all of this is because we're no longer in right relationship with nature. So sin then destroys in these incredibly comprehensive ways. Sin is not just some moral failure. Sin doesn't just impact some of the decisions, this narrow scope of decisions that we make. Whether or not we should have that drink, whether or not we should go to that club with that friend, it's so much more and so much bigger than that. Sin is the cause of war and violence and genocide and totalitarian governments wanting to take over other countries. It's the result of our so- that's the result of our social brokenness. Sin is the cause of depression and anger and bitterness and anxiety and personality issues and insecurity. That's the result of our inner brokenness. And all of these things happen because of our, uh, of our hiding from God, because we have disobeyed God in our lives. All of the ways in which sin has an impact in every scope, in every aspect of our lives. If you grasp then the comprehensive nature of sin, it makes a huge difference in terms of how you think and live your life, right? So one of the things that we have done traditionally in the past in churches is sometimes, and I grew up like this, and I, I did this as well, is that depending upon the church that you go to, sometimes we would focus on this one narrow scope, one narrow area of sin. So it was said, um, um, it would be uh, characterized like this, is that most uh, liberal churches, if you go to a liberal church, uh, they will focus on the, uh, the social sins, social injustices. But they don't deal with the personal and the moral. Right? And they do. The general description is right. That, that they believe that all people were actually good people. They kind of buy into the romantic ideal of Locke and, and Rousseau that says, we're all born with a clean slate. And it's just a matter of social engineering. It's just a matter of being in the right social environment. It's just a matter of being taught right and given the right opportunities. People will be good people. Then they work on the social justices, which is a good thing to work on the social evils in the world. But that falls apart because no matter how good and well-intentioned you are about social engineering and try to raise people up right, 
Even the best people seem to fall into wrong ways of doing things. Even the best people do some of the most hideous things. And then you get into the conservative churches, which is my route, and sometimes you ignore the social things. And you say, it's all about the moral. It's all about just personal things and, and just being right before God. Just, just, it, it, just, you just work on that. And it has a tendency to, to, uh, uh, to make us insulated from what's happening in the world. And, and people think, it was like, wow, all this stuff that's going on in the world, all the evils that's going on in the world, and you think it can be fixed People think, people will, will I, I remember having these conversations where people said, do you really think that's all just kind of like matter of just individual decisions? It's like, that's it? That's all you have to do? One person? One person? And you just focus on your own sins? Just, don't you have to work on the social sins? What I'm trying to say is conservative, liberal, whatever, it doesn't take into the scope of sin. And I think the biblical understanding says the scope of sin it's much bigger than we realize. And that's what Genesis 3 tells us. And if we don't have a right understanding of what sin does, all the ways in which sin infects our lives, then we will be focusing on this one narrow aspect of what sin does and will give us, make us think that we're actually fighting sin in this way when in fact you have completely ignored everything else. It's like cleaning up my room in my house and saying, well, the rest of the house is a mess. But it's okay because my room's clean. It's okay because my corner, my little tiny corner, my, my books are in order, so I've done my part. That's not going to fly. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because you see the evils and the ways in which sin breaks so many different areas of our lives. And Genesis 3 points out all the ways in which sin poisons us. Then what then is our hope? The hope is also given. The hope is also given in Genesis 3. We have a clue as to God, how God would do that. And a prophecy that he gives here. And what he says to the serpent in verse 15. Verse 15, look at what it says to the servants. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What God is saying to the serpent is this. There's this going to be two paths of lineage in the world for the humanity. Children of Eve, right, between you and the women, and children of the serpent. There will be a war. Um, not only will there be sin, but because, because of the way that they were created, there will be a battle. But notice uh, something here. A um, couple of things here. Commentators note this, and I thought this was really fascinating when I was studying this. Said, uh, first, the enmity is between uh, two groups of people, right? Or two, two categories. Those, he says, uh, uh, between your offspring, offspring and her offspring, hers, uh, their Groups, right? And then it comes on uh, in the second part of verse 15 where it says, and then he, it's a singular, it turns into a singular. All plural, then it turns into he will crush your head. 
That's one thing to note. Second thing to note really quickly is that um, believers, children of Eve, are called children of Eve, which is interesting because traditional genealogies are patriarchal. Traditional genealogies would say children of Adam. So one commentator notes, why talk about this as offspring of Eve and offspring of, of the serpent? It says, in the whole history of the world, this commentator says, there was only one person who was only an offspring of a woman. A virgin shall conceive, and his name will be called Emmanuel. So verse 15 becomes a prophetic statement about the coming of Christ himself and what he is going to do to destroy all the works of the serpent, all aspects of sin. Everything will get healed. Is Jesus just going to convert people? No. He's going to do so much more than that. He's going to deal with poverty. He's going to deal with injustices in the world. He's going to deal with the broken nature of the world, the floods and the broken homes, everything. And that's what Jesus is going to do. All the works of sin will be battled by Christ himself. That's what Jesus is going to do. So therefore, if we are going to be the agents of his kingdom, if we are going to be his people, then we're going to be doing that as well now. That's why in our church, we ought to be concerned about saving people. That's a no-brainer, right? But we also ought to be concerned That's why we're also concerned about clean water in Africa, right? That's part of the effects of the brokenness of sin. We're also concerned about struggling families. We're concerned about what happens when nature breaks down in enmity toward his people. Do you see the comprehensive ways in which now that our awareness of sin tells us now that how our response ought to be? Do you see the work of the king? Do you want to be part of that work now? In healing all of these broken areas, in our relationships, in our, in our neighborhoods, in ourselves, in our world. Let's pray that. And pray to the Lord to, for us, for our eyes to open up once again to all the ways in which we have been hiding, to all the ways in which we have compartmentalized our understanding of sin so that we can be part of his ministry and his creation to declare his kingdom glorious above all. Jesus, you are Lord of all because you have redeemed all, because your cross saves all. 
and heals all. Lord, to you we turn, to you we come. May we, um, may we be your people by following you in the ways that you heal and you minister in this world, broken and full of sin. May we um, pursue your love for people in all that we do as a church and as your people, Lord. We thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.